If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another Bradbury 100. At the time of recording, it's May 2023 which means it's now 40 years since the film version of Something Wicked This Way Comes was released. The film was directed by Jack Clayton, written by Ray Bradbury, although I'll be saying more about that later, and it starred Jonathan Price as Mr Dark and Jason Robards as the father of Will Halloway. In the case of Something Wicked This Way Comes, we've got something very, very interesting. On the face of it, Ray's 1962 novel had been adapted by him into a screenplay and then filmed by Jack Clayton. And that's all there is to it. But when you dig beneath the surface, you find that actually there was continuous activity from Bradbury starting as far back as 1948 and working not just through to 1983 when the film was made, but through and beyond that with a stage play version that he wrote late in life. So what I'd like to do in this episode is go through some of the prehistory of Something Wicked This Way Comes, then we'll talk about the development of the film, and then we'll look at what happened to Something Wicked after the initial preview screening. Something Wicked This Way Comes itself derives from a short story that Ray published in 1948 called The Black Ferris, and I've described it as a fast-moving tale. Now, although it's a, it's a fairly slight story in terms of having any sort of great significance or moral message or anything like that, it's essentially a very crunched-down version of Something Wicked This Way Comes. There are these two boys, Hank and Pete, and they go off to a carnival and they see Mr Cougar climbing aboard the Ferris wheel and the Ferris wheel transforms Mr Cougar into a child. The child is called Pikes and Pikes goes off and commits, well, petty crimes. And after he's committed the crimes, he goes back on the Ferris wheel and ages himself back up to Mr Cougar once again. Now, that is, in essence one episode from what we know as Something Wicked This Way Comes. But, of course, Ray hadn't written Something Wicked This Way Comes at this point. He just wrote this episode. What makes the story quite interesting, I think, is the two boys trying to solve this riddle of what the hell is going on here. And basically they speculate as to what's going on, and then they test their speculation by making new observations. So... Although this is not in any way a science fiction story, there is a kind of a, a logical, rational approach being applied by the two boys. I find that quite a, an affecting way of telling a story. 
Now, in this one little episode, we see Bradbury's approach to fantasy. We know that the Ferris wheel turning backwards turns back the age of a character. And we know it because we witness it as readers. We witness it in exactly the same way that the boys witness it. It's using a kind of cinematic logic where seeing is believing. We see it happen. We see the wheel turn. We see the character get younger. We believe that it happens. And Bradbury uses this same technique in any number of other short stories. Uh, the Crowd, where a man irrationally believes that the same ghoulish people gather around every single car crash. Or in The Wind, where a man believes that the wind is out to get him. Or in Skeleton, where a man believes that his own internal skeleton is out to get him. In each case, the character's irrational belief becomes a logical state of mind given what they have witnessed. And I think that's a key point to Bradbury's use of the fantastic. He rarely shows arbitrary events taking place. There usually is a logic. OK, so that's the Black Ferris. And it provides the starting point for what became Something Wicked This Way Comes. The two boys visiting a carnival, witnessing strange events, trying to make sense of it. Now, it's quite well known what happened next, which is that Bradbury took the idea and turned it into a screenplay for Gene Kelly. So I'm not going to go through the whole history of how that happened. Suffice it to say that Ray's screenplay for Gene Kelly was titled The Dark Carnival. And we're talking here about the mid to late 1950s. What I will say is that many of the elements that we now know from Something Wicked This Way Comes were present in that screenplay or treatment that he wrote for Gene Kelly. At the same time that Ray was writing the screenplay, he was working on his novel Dandelion Wine, which is set in the small Illinois town of Greentown. And it seems quite natural then that when he's writing this screenplay for Gene Kelly, that he also sets that in Greentown. People often think of Something Wicked This Way Comes as following Dandelion Wine, because in publication terms, that's what happened. Dandelion Wine came out in 57, Something Wicked came out in 62. If you read the one book followed by the other, it looks as if he's explored the town in Dandelion Wine, and then he's decided to carry on using it in the next book. The reality was that he was working on these two things simultaneously. There's an awful lot of something wicked in The Dark Carnival. We've got the two boys. They're still called Pete and Hank because Ray has developed this from the Black Ferris. We have the carnival. We have the boys visiting the carnival at night and finding it frightening, but then returning during the day and all is sweetness and light and they can't figure out why they were so worried by it. The Ferris wheel is replaced by a carousel. And as I've pointed out several times, a Ferris wheel doesn't really have a sense of direction to it. When Ray describes a Ferris wheel going backwards, OK, if you were riding a Ferris wheel forward or backwards, you could tell the difference. But if you're watching a Ferris wheel from a distance, you couldn't tell whether it's going forward or backwards. There is no inherent sense of direction. But a carousel, because it's got the horses on it, 
you can clearly see when a carousel is going backwards. So I think in switching from Ferris to carousel, Bradbury really strengthens the visual effect of things being out of kilter when the carousel turns in reverse. In this version of the screenplay, there is the set piece of the carnival parade and the boys hiding down in the drains. And then there's the confrontation with Evil at the end and kind of the solving of the problem and and so on. What's missing from this version of the story, though, is Will's father. They interact with a man from the library, but it's not Will's father. That's something that Ray would develop later in writing further drafts, which became the novel that we're familiar with. He developed the father as a separate figure from the man at the library. And then eventually he merged those two characters together. And that really gives us the probably the strongest character in Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is Mr. Halloway. So the Gene Kelly screenplay goes nowhere, as is often the case in Hollywood. Films don't get made. So Ray takes his story, his characters, and turns it into a novel. And this is the book that we're familiar with that comes out in 1962. He goes through a number of drafts as he does this. There is one phase of the rewriting where he is writing the story from the point of view of Will Halloway, but then eventually he reverts to an omniscient narrator. Now, I maintain that because Ray spent a lot of time working on the story through the voice of Will Halloway, Will is slightly more of a focus character than Jim. I have a suspicion that if Ray had spent the whole time working on telling the story from an omniscient point of view, he might have developed Will and Jim to the same extent, and they might have been equal focal characters. But that's not what happened. And therefore, Will, I think, comes out as much more of a focus. In turn, that boosts the role of Mr. Halloway. So I think all of this is for the good. I think that the novel probably turned out better than it would have done if Ray hadn't had that excursion of writing through Jim's point of view. I think it's fair to say that Something Wicked This Way Comes is the last of Ray's classic books. Now, of course, he published a huge number of books after Something Wicked This Way Comes. But if you think of the major classics, you've got The Martian Chronicles, you've got Fahrenheit 451, you've got Dandelion Wine, you've got Something Wicked This Way Comes, you've got all of the short story collections. But really, Something Wicked is seen as the last great Bradbury novel. Personally, I don't believe that. Personally, I think his late career stuff the Irish novel, the mystery novels that he wrote in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. I think there is some really strong work there. But in terms of the traditional way of looking at Bradbury's work, by the time we get to Something Wicked, we're kind of at the end of the classic period. So it's interesting to take a look at the reviews from the time. Uh, the Irish novelist and short story writer Val Mulkerns called the novel A Sorry Lapse, and a piece of horrific whimsy and incredibly puerile. I find that really uh, rather a, a sad way of describing what is actually a very lively novel. 
in the Guardian newspaper, Norman Shrapnel praised the devilry, that's his word, devilry, uh, which manages to be at the same time both sinister and moral. But he says he found it smokier and windier than Bradbury's previous work. <laughs> Quite what he means by those terms, I don't know. And then we come to Kingsley Amis, novelist, critic, somebody who had done an awful lot to promote science fiction, and in particular satirical science fiction, in the United Kingdom, and therefore somebody who you might think would be sympathetic to Bradbury's latest work. Well, unfortunately, Kingsley Amis was very scathing, and he felt that being a work of fantasy, the book wasn't built on logic and extrapolation, but was built on what he calls whimsy. I always quite enjoy reading this. I'm going to read you Kingsley Amis's review, or part of it. He summarises the plot, which he thinks is rather arbitrary. This is what he says. A carnival turns up from somewhere under the management of Mr Dark, who is death, or the devil, or somebody. He operates a carousel, which adds to or subtracts from your age, somehow, so that a small boy becomes 200 years old, and his aunt regresses to childhood. A freak show includes a fat man who grew fat through lusting too much or something, and an ex-lightning rod salesman squashed into dwarfism because he was really a small man in some way. Huh. OK, thank you, Kingsley. It's an amusing review, and it, it refuses the possibility of symbolism or magic as being organising principles of fantasy. So what I take from it is... Not so much that Amos was anti-something wicked this way comes, but simply that he is hostile to fantasy. Open to science fiction, but hostile to fantasy. And on that basis, Ray never really stood a chance. OK, so the book is out. The book really does quite well in terms of sales. And it's still one of Ray's most popular books to this day. Now, Ray puts it aside for a while, but in the early 70s, he is drawn to readapt something wicked. It started out as a screenplay, and now he wants to turn the book back into a screenplay. He has several attempts at this because there are lots of people interested in making the film. So he does a version of it for somebody, he does another version for somebody else, and it takes, well, nearly a decade for the film to actually end up in the hands of somebody who is going to make it. So in 1974, he's starting from scratch and writing a brand new screenplay. And this was written for the producers Chartoff Winkler and 20th Century Fox. And he wrote 262 pages of script. Why do I say that in that kind of shocked tone of voice? Any screenwriter or student of screenwriting will tell you that the rule of thumb for a well-formatted screenplay is that one page of script corresponds roughly to one minute of screen time. So if Ray had written a 262-page script, he was writing a script for a 262-minute film. That's way over four hours, four and a half hours. Nowadays, we're quite used to that. We see films by Peter Jackson, James Cameron, Martin Scorsese, films of enormous length nowadays. 
but back in the 70s, the long film was 90 minutes. So to have written a 262-page script was really going some. Why did Ray write such a long script? It's because he took a very literal approach to adapting his book. It was actually a scene-by-scene adaptation of the novel. Hardly any deletions, hardly any modifications. And he seems to have been under the influence of Sam Peckinpah. Now, when Ray was writing this script for Chartoff Winkler and 20th Century Fox, as far as I know, there was no director assigned to the film. But Ray did have Sam Peckinpah in mind to direct. And Peckinpah said that what he would do in adapting the book is rip the pages out of the book and stuff them into the camera. And therefore, Ray felt empowered to do exactly that. He took his book and he tried to do a literal adaptation. And in correspondence with the producer Paul Maslansky, Ray wrote, and I quote, Now the novel is the screenplay. Everything in the novel must be in the screenplay. So this 1974 screenplay is a remarkably extreme example of what we call fidelity in adaptation. So, 1974, a really long screenplay. Two years later, Ray writes another screenplay version of Something Wicked. And this is because the Chartoff Winkler and 20th Century Fox version of the film stalled. And in 1976, Something Wicked was optioned as a film property by Paramount Pictures and Kirk Douglas's company, Briner or Brinner. And this is where Jack Clayton comes into the story for the first time. He was attached to the film as the director in 1976. Ray and Jack had met each other when Ray was working on Moby Dick back in the 1950s. Ray came to Ireland and then visited England, and while he was in England, he met Jack Clayton. Clayton didn't have very many screen credits prior to Something Wicked, but the few he had were very impressive. He made the very influential British social realism film Room at the Top in 1959, and the very effective and again very influential supernatural film The Innocents in 1961. That one was based on Turn of the Screw. He also did a film version of The Great Gatsby. And one of the things Clayton always said is that the diversity of his filmmaking comes from what he called an absolute horror of repeating myself. Now, when Clayton came aboard in 1976, he offered some notes to Bradbury. And I won't go into all of the details here, but I've got some bullet points. Clayton wanted to immediately establish the normalcy of the small town before the carnival arrives. He wanted to condense the script. Now, this was already a condensed script. Ray's previous script in 74 had been 262 pages. This 76 script was much more manageable, but Clayton felt that even that was, quote, infinitely too long. He wanted to juxtapose some of the scenes to increase the excitement, the tension, the pace. He wanted to remove Disney-esque elements. That's ironic because the film would eventually end up being produced by Disney. He wanted to reduce the dialogue. He wanted to vary the horrors. And what he was getting at here 
is that the screenplay seems to be presenting this view that everybody's fantasy, your fantasy, my fantasy, everybody's fantasy, is to either become younger or to become older. And that the screenplay is almost fixated on this idea, as if that's what motivates everyone in the world. And Clayton didn't believe that for one minute. So Clayton had quite a few notes, which Ray took on board. He ended up with something that was 113 pages long. So that's less than half the previous script. And another key achievement of this version of the script is enlarging the role of Mr. Dark, and in particular, his frustration in trying to identify the boys. Now that frustration, I think, is something that in the finished film released in 1983 with Jonathan Price in the role of Mr. Dark, Jonathan Price is magnificent at showing this frustration that Dark has, and he must surely be taking that from the words on the page. In the 76 script, very specifically, Mr. Halloway is not a janitor, but he is the town librarian. I said earlier that Ray, in writing the novel, had merged two characters together. He had merged the father and the man from the library, Mr. Ellis. He'd merged them together to make one character, and it was a much stronger character as a result. In the screenplay, Ray goes just a little step further in elevating the status of Mr. Holloway. He's no longer just somebody who has access to the library. He is now the person in charge of the library. So that gives Holloway the ability to rally all sorts of factual material together and ultimately, of course, solve the mystery of who Mr. Dark is. And then there's the library scene, the confrontation between Holloway and Mr. Dark. That scene had more or less been there since the 1950s screenplay for Gene Kelly. It was very well expressed in the novel. It's one of the key scenes in the novel. When Ray got to the 1974 screenplay, he had Mr. Dark tearing page after page from a Bible, with the pages turning to ash as they hit the floor. It's a visually enhanced version of the scene. Then, with Jack Clayton's intervention, we've got Mr. Dark no longer counting down in time, but he's now counting up in age. With each page that he rips from the book, he tells Mr. Holloway that he is now older. So this 1976 screenplay now has the strongest version yet of the library confrontation scene, and it's more or less exactly the same as how you see it in the 1983 film. So Ray wrote it in 76, but it survives intact all the way through to the finished film. Now, I think it's fair to say that the ending of the 76 screenplay is somewhat unsatisfactory. This often happens in screenwriting, and it's the third act problem. It's very easy to set up a situation or a puzzle. It's very easy to explore the consequences of that in the second act. But to actually resolve everything, tie everything up with a neat bow in the third act, is really very difficult. And the 1976 screenplay doesn't quite pull it off. Part of the problem is that Jim Nightshade doesn't quite have a satisfactory motivation 
in the final scenes. But it doesn't matter, because in 1977, Paramount withdrew from the project. Bradbury still wanted to do it, Clayton still wanted to do it, Kirk Douglas still wanted to do it. But without the financial backing of a studio, the film wasn't going to happen. And so it didn't. Now we roll forward another four years to 1981, and now Disney are interested in something wicked. And so Douglas's company, now with Peter Douglas producing, and with Jack Clayton being recommended as the director to more or less pick up from where he left off, they dusted off the 1976 screenplay, and that was going to be the basis for the film. However, in 1981, there was a Writers Guild of America strike. Ray, and indeed all screenwriters in Hollywood, was unable to work. And during this time, without Ray's knowledge, Jack Clayton turned to his friend John Mortimer for a polish to the script. Now, this was nothing new. Jack Clayton had often relied on John Mortimer to be his script doctor. You may know John Mortimer better as the creator of Rumpole of the Bailey. Mortimer had collaborated with Clayton on The Innocents in 1961. So, the 1981 screenplay still has Ray Bradbury's name on it, and it possibly had to for contractual reasons, but it had been substantially rewritten by John Mortimer. Later on, Ray would report this behaviour of Jack Clayton's as a betrayal. And it was the reason that the two good friends, Bradbury and Clayton, basically stopped talking to each other. And after the film was over, they never spoke again. Now, one of the things that the... I'm going to call it the Mortimer script from now on, but it's really... Bradbury's script rewritten by Mortimer under instruction from Clayton. So actually tearing it apart and figuring out who wrote what is almost impossible. But I'll call it the Mortimer script as a shorthand way of referring to the script that had John Mortimer's fingerprints on it, if you like. Now, some of the changes in this version of the script uh, are really quite positive in helping the story flow and helping the viewer understand what's going on. So, for example, this Mortimer script brings in a character arc, a very small one, but it's there for Jim's mother. There's a more distinct arc for Miss Foley, the school teacher. There is a specific fate for Mr Tetley, the cigar store owner, because we see him riding a Ferris wheel disappearing and then turning up later as a waxwork exhibit. There is a specific fate for Mr Crescetti, the barber. He's seduced by the dancing girls in the Temple of Temptation and transformed into a bearded lady. And there is a more specific background to Mr Holloway's melancholy. He's no longer a man upset by a sort of a general midlife malaise, but he is now in a kind of stasis because of a very specific incident in his past when he was unable to rescue Will from drowning. And the storm 
and this is something that I think is not as good in this version of the script, the storm that, that comes along at the end of the story is no longer just a symbol. It now is something almost real and physical that Mr Dark wants to tap into. Either that or it's something he fears will destroy the carnival. But it's as if Clayton and Mortimer were not comfortable with the idea of a purely symbolic storm coming along or an arbitrary storm coming along. They wanted it to have some plot function as well. So various changes are made. Some things are introduced to clarify the story. Others to, I think, make the story a bit more mechanical than it would otherwise be. And it also cuts away some of Bradbury's original story. The ending of the novel where essentially laughter and happiness is the key to overcoming the evil in the world, that's done away with in this version of the screenplay. Ray still had it in his 76 screenplay, but in this 81 Mortimer screenplay, that's gone. Uh, I don't think Clayton or Mortimer believed that ending, so they get rid of it. Now, there's some interesting things that you find when you go through the documentation. I've been very privileged in being allowed to go through Ray's papers related to Something Wicked This Way Comes. And in 2015, I think it was, I systematically went through Ray's filing cabinets, which are now held in the Ray Bradbury Centre in Indianapolis. And I was able to pull out studio memos, memos that Bradbury had sent to Clayton and Clayton sent to Bradbury, notes from meetings and production call sheets. So I was able to piece together a fairly detailed chronology Late in life, Ray would say that Jack Clayton had ruined Something Wicked This Way Comes. And he talked about how Clayton had betrayed him and how their friendship fell apart. Now, I do believe that the friendship fell apart. And I do believe that Clayton's use of John Mortimer was something of a betrayal. But if you look at the correspondence of the time, and I'm talking about letters and memos written in August 1981, you find that Ray broadly approved of the Mortimer script, although he did take exception to some of the revisions. Something Wicked began filming on the 28th of September. These would have been the scenes at the beginning of the film where the lightning rod salesman shows up. Then they moved on to filming on the Greentown set, so that's filming the scenes in the town, and then carnival scenes, and it was all over, really, by Christmas. And the production team reassembled in January for pick-up shots, uh, additional shots required to make the edit of the film work. So by Christmas 1981, pretty much everything of the film was in the can, it just needed to be edited. The script had been rewritten without Ray's knowledge, but with a broad amount of approval from him. And of course, he kept his name on the script. If he had really, really disapproved of the script, he could have removed his name from it. And in July 1982, so about six months after filming had completed, they held a preview screening. 
Now, Hollywood loves its preview screenings. They get a couple of hundred people together in a cinema. They show them a film for free and they get their opinions on little cards, little scorecards that people can fill in. 200 people saw the preview. Their response to it was disastrous. According to the Disney production executive Tom Wilhite, audience ratings on those little cards were just average or below, and this confirmed to Disney management that much of the film, quotes, lacked energy and clarity. Now, Jack Clayton argued that they'd just shown the film to the wrong audience. And this is something we see again and again in Hollywood. You can have a film that is somewhat off the beaten track and you show it to a random audience or an audience of the wrong age group or of the wrong demographic, and it can go down like a lead balloon. But whatever Jack Clayton may say, the writer Stephen Ribello points out that the mere rumour of an unsuccessful preview can be disastrous. So as a matter of damage limitation, Disney immediately withdrew the film from their release schedule while they decided what to do next. And that's where I'm going to stop the story and we'll pick it up next time with the remaking of Something Wicked This Way Comes. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk.